Welcome to the Audiobook Speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the Speakeasy. This is where you'll meet narrators, coaches, engineers, and other audiobook professionals, as well as some listeners who will be sharing what they look for in a good audiobook. If you're interested in audiobook production, you've come to the right place. Tonight's Speakeasy Chat is being brought to you by Squeaky Cheese Productions on the Cutting Wedge. You can find them on the web at squeakycheeseproductions.com. Tonight's chat is also brought to you by David Stever's Raven Rain, book three in the Johnny Della Rosa thriller series. A hard-charging, hard-boiled detective who enjoys beautiful women and top-shelf bourbon, Johnny Della Rosa's past collides with his future when hired to stop a blackmail scheme against a local celebrity, former pro football star turned car dealer Stan Shelton. He's pressed into a fourth and long, with the clock running out, as his journey to find the truth and clear his client spirals into an abyss of deceit and death. Noir for the 21st Century, Raven Rain, now available on audio, narrated by Bill Lord. And now, come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and join us for a friendly chat about audiobooks. My guest tonight is an independent audiobook producer and director. Alicia Merricks, thanks for joining me in the speakeasy tonight. Hey, Rich, thanks for having me. I'm so glad you could make it. I'm glad you got in touch and uh, and let me know what you were doing, who you were working for, and uh, and what kind of work you were doing. I think that you're uh, you're a perfect guest here in the Speakeasy. Yeah, well, I'm a big fan of uh, the audiobook Speakeasy, um, and so I uh, took the opportunity. I wanted to be part of the community. It's great. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And I also understand from your email that you're a big fan of gin, which is a, a popular uh, spirit here in the Speakeasy. So, um, so let's let's hear what you're having in the Speakeasy and see if that love of gin has carried over for your drink for the night. Yeah, well, it has. I um, I wanted to take a stab at recreating my favorite drink, um, but I have failed miserably at Uh-oh. that. Oh, so, yeah. So, I, I, my favorite drink is it's called the English Rose. Um, not the one that you'll be able to find online, um, but one that back in my like old favorite joint in uh, Newcastle in the UK, um, a place called Alvino's. Um, a, a, one of the bar dudes was uh, mixing up drinks and I, I was like, oh, I didn't fancy anything on the menu. And so he was like, oh, well, tell me what you fancy. And I was like, well, I love gin. I like elderflower. I like, you know, fresh, nice uh, drinks. And he made up this English rose. It was like kind of... Uh, an amalgamation of something that he had been making and something that I loved. Um, and it was like the most perfect cocktail <laughs> ever. And I haven't been able to find it or recreate it. Um, that, that sounds like I, a great bartender to know. Somebody who can say, what do you like? What do I know how to do? Now I'm going to make you something. Yeah. And he like, he hit the nail on the head. Like I, that was my only drink for the whole like three year period. I lived there. <laughs> um, but I couldn't find sort of the, the, um, I think it's a rose infused gin. Um, I couldn't uh. find that and I couldn't find like orange blossom. <laughs> um, and so instead I went for, um, sort of a little bit of a Franken monster English garden. So I've gone for, it's got um, Bar Hill Gin, which is like a juniper and honey gin. Mm-hmm. Um, and then elderflower liqueur, lime juice, apple juice, and like ribbit of cucumber. But it was really sweet. And so I also added in some lime seltzer and it's kind of this beautiful, refreshing. Yeah, it's No great. kidding. It's, it's got apple juice as well. It does. Not that much, but just enough to kind of add um, sort of that. I think it's probably more for the color, you know, uh, makes yeah, it more it, interesting. It could be. Um, I tried a year or two ago around Thanksgiving to try to come up with a cocktail that 
had apple juice as the base, well, or as the, not the spirit base, but, you know, the, the main mixer. And um, I just could not do it. And I only recently found one with apple juice that I really, really like. It's a perfect um, fall kind of drink because it's got allspice dram. And so it's, uh, it's, it tastes a lot like spiced cider. Um, but it's just kind of unusual to hear, or at least for me, to hear of cocktails that have apple juice. So what's, what you call that the, an English garden? Yeah, so the English garden um, doesn't have the uh, lime salsa in it. Um, it's much like I, I found it too sweet without that salsa. Mm. Um, I think, again, it was the apple juice and the elderflower liqueur. Like elderflower liqueur is sticky, sticky, sticky oh, stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and so just putting in that salsa kind of uh, really, really cut through the sweetness. And so it just came out as really like delightfully fresh. That's great. Um, that sounds really good. I'm I'm gonna have to look up the uh, the English Garden. I haven't haven't looked that one up. Um, I I thought when you said English Rose, I actually thought the English Rose was a was a whiskey drink. Um, but I just looked it up and I found it on Difford's, and uh, it is definitely a gin drink. Um, it also it calls for a liqueur that I'm not familiar with, but it's also got grenadine and um, uh, vermouth, and it's just that's definitely not something I've made before. So I'll have to give that one a try as well. Um, so when he made that for you and, and he called it an English rose or an English rose riff or however he referred to it, um, had you had an English rose at that point? No, I hadn't. It was one of those, like he, he was totally like going for the tips because it was very much created it perfectly for you. And I mm. felt very special. So like <laughs> he really hit the nail on the head, but yeah, I don't think it is what I had was maybe him not knowing what sort of the classic English rose was as well mm -hmm. and 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 just kind of naming it that there in the spot but um yeah so I hadn't had the the classic one that you'll find all over the internet I've only had this one and you can still find it on Elvino's website on their like cocktail list so oh, you wow. can yeah so you can still find it there which I love wow yeah that's very cool I feel um, like my legacy has been left behind yeah. <laughs> <laughs> has nothing to do with me but you know I'll take I'll take it yeah yeah uh, well, that's cool. I, I've learned a couple of new drinks that I'm going to have to try now, the um, the English Rose and the English Garden. And uh, I'll try both of them because I'm a huge fan of gin sours. And in fact, I'm having one tonight. And yeah. it's the first time that I've had this drink. And since you like elderflower liqueur and since you are aware of just how damn sweet it is, um, <laughs> you, you may like this one. You may want to cut the elderflower, which if I make this again, which I think I will... Um, I probably will cut the elderflower because it is awfully sweet. And I mm. typically don't go for sweet drinks. I typically have um, slightly more bitter and definitely more booze to sugar, booze to simple syrup, booze to honey, whatever it is, uh, mm -hmm. ratio. But I saw this one and I thought, well, since I'm looking for a gin cocktail anyway, and I've never had this, I'll, I'll give it a try. It's from a blog post from six years, over six years ago. Um, and it calls for Citadel gin, but I don't have any, and I haven't had any for a while. But I do have uh, a new gin to me, uh, Catoctin Creek, which is uh, from Virginia. And the way that it tastes reminds me a little of what I thought of Citadel. Now, if I actually had them right next to each other right now, I'd probably think, what the hell was I thinking? These are completely different. <laughs> but for whatever reason, it, it kind of had that effect on me when I tasted it um, when I first bought it. But uh, it's called a French Laundry. And it was okay. um, originated in uh, at the, I believe, at the Franklin Cafe in Boston, uh, presumably as sort of an homage to the restaurant in Northern California, which is so well known. Uh, but it's got gin, Saint Germain, 
uh, lime juice and a little bit of Luxardo maraschino liqueur and oh. uh, and several dashes of grapefruit bitters. And so far, I really like it. I think it's great. It is just a bit sweet for uh, mm. for my taste. And so I think if I do this again, I'll probably do a little bit less Saint Germain and uh, and actually maybe even a little bit more lime juice since I I really love sour drinks. So so anyway, it's two two, two yeah two gin drinks tonight. I'll uh, I'll send you a link to the uh, to the blog post that has this. Um, it's uh, it it kind of sent me down a bit of a rabbit hole um, looking for a, a different kind of a gin gin sour. <laughs> for tonight. So uh, it's not a London dry gin, but uh, but it's still gin. So yeah, I don't have a normal like a gin that I would normally pick up. My local uh, wine store um, has stopped like stocking my favorite gins um, and started only stocking sort of local uh, small sort of distilleries. Mm. Um, and so when I went in, I thought, you know what, maybe I'll try one with the honey. It It, it smells a little bit odd like this is not a gin that you would use for a martini mm-hmm. yeah um but i thought you know what because i'm doing quite fresh quite um uh sort of a, a light drink especially now that i've added the seltzer like it actually works it's cool yeah bar hill from vermont and i thought i'd try something u.s based as well i've definitely heard of bar hill and i think that i've actually seen it locally but i have never bought a bottle so i'll have to i'll have to try that didn't realize that it was uh, that it had honey in the mix i love trying new gin so what what is your favorite gin I mean, I, oh, I mean, again, I think it's the same. Like if I had them all lined up, it would be much easier. Um, mm-hmm. But um, I mean, I classically go for a botanist. Um, I quite like the um, the uh, bathtub gin. Uh, oh, I haven't heard of bathtub. Botanist, I know. Uh, botanist is very well, very highly regarded. Yeah, it's it's a great like all around uh, gin for like um, most drinks, which I think is great. Um, mm. And I really like uh, Sipsmith and Queen's Courage as well. Sipsmith is one that I've looked for. Uh, don't they have a few flavored ones? It seems to me that they had like a lemon drizzle or something like that. Do they? I th- I thought it was Sipsmith. Maybe I'm thinking of somebody else, but um, but I have definitely heard of of Sipsmith as well. So it yeah, sounds like you've got a lot of a uh, lot of lot of good gins that you like to have in the cabinet there. A bit of experience with the gin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I as well. So uh, so that's good. We've got two gin drinks for the night. So, uh, Alicia, thanks so much for coming into the speakeasy. Cheers. Cheers. So uh, you sound like you're not from around here. No. No, I'm not from around here. No, I grew up um, in, in England. Um, do you know England well? No. I have been to London once. Actually, I was working in... Um, Oh, geez. Now I'm going to, uh, Croydon, uh, Croydon. Oh, okay, yeah. it's a little bit of an armpit, but, um, but I was working, <laughs> working in Croydon and, uh, I, I was able to get away for one afternoon to go up to London. Um, went to the tower, did just a little bit of brief sightseeing and I would love to go back. I just haven't been yet. And I don't really know that much about the country. Whenever somebody tells me where they're from, I always have to look it up on a map. I mean, that's basically the same for me when someone says weather uh, from the U.S. I'm like, well, this is a lot bigger. I'm not sure what I'm saying. That's true, yeah. Yeah, so when you're thinking of the U.K., like, um, so I come from the West Country, which is southwest of London, that little, like, nubbin on the end of the country. Mm -hmm. Um, And sort of for a a filmic reference, if you think of uh, The Hobbits from Lord of the Rings, Mm That's basically home. I think Hobbiton's actually based on the West Country. Oh, no kidding. Um, so, yeah, there's like regional sort of accents, um, very rolling hills. Well, Bilbo did thing. live in West End. 
Exactly. Like I, I, I'm pretty sure it's based on, um, on, on the West Country. But if you might have a lot of Lord of the Rings fans writing in saying she's lying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I, but I'm pretty sure it's based on it. And but yeah, it feels very reminiscent of it anyway. So it's sort of kind of small town country, uh, rolling hills. That sort of aspect. Nice. And did you grow up there? Yeah, I did. I spent the whole of my uh, whole of my youth there up until I went to university when I was eighteen. Um, and it, it was yeah, a really, really sort of wholesome upbringing in the way that sort of the three kids in the family, two parents. Um, obviously, we had our problems. All families do. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I grew up um, very next to my school, um, my secondary school, um, and uh, I was like that proper. Uh, bookish and theatre kids. I was like, I kind of checked all the boxes if you wanted to find the stereotype on both of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, we lived so close to the school that it was, uh, I mean, I think it was probably tactical on my parents' part because it meant they didn't have to drive me to all the like <laughs> extracurricular stuff. Thinking ahead. Um, yeah, and I was like, so I was, I was in all the school shows. I was uh, in all the music clubs I could possibly be, and I attended all the dancing. Like I was, I wanted to be involved in everything. So then, um, where did you go to university, and did you continue that and end up with a theater degree? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, and so, like, I, I kind of, I took a year out. Um, because I, I was not sure if I wanted to go to drama school or if I wanted to go to university. I just, I kind of wasn't sure where I wanted to take it and how I wanted to take it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd always been like the kid, I think, I think when you're younger, people call it bossy, but I look back at it now and I was directing, like I was that <laughs> kid. <laughs> and so I always kind of knew that every, like what I wanted to do, I wanted to act at that age. Like it's the only thing I kind of knew about. I mean, like you don't see so much of the industry when you're sort of 15, 16 and making all those decisions. So literally the only thing I could think about was that I wanted to be an actress. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I took a year out and I, um, I actually ended up teaching at my school. I was doing like teaching assistant sort of work and kind of just figuring out what it meant to be a director. And, and they let me in on all the school shows. They let me be assistant director. And then I sort of directed my very first uh, show on my own. Um, when I was like 19, I did a Midsummer Night's Dream and probably butchered it, but it was a huge, (laughs) huge learning experience. And I I very, like, very uh, quickly realized that, you know, I wanted to go to university before I wanted to go to drama school. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I ended up going to uh, Royal Holloway, which is a University of London, but it's actually like, um, it's, it's based outside of London. Um, and, And so it's kind of a little bit more intimate. It's a really lovely lovely university it has this incredible building um that kind of makes you think of hogwarts <laughs> um, that's his main thing and my my dad's favorite joke when i was there was uh, that he loved to drop the royal and make it sound like i was locked up in holloway prison instead which is like <laughs> the women's big women's prison in london um oh, that was that's his great. favorite joke yeah <laughs> um, and so when i was at university I mean, the university uh, system's different than it is in the US. It's not kind of like a major and minor situation and you kind of get to do a lot of different things. You had to really be very specific about what you wanted to study from the start, which for me has its own problems. Like, I I mean, 18-year-olds deciding what they want to do for the rest of their lives. Yeah, that that was certainly not easy for me. I know it's not easy for a lot of people. And a lot of people end up making a choice that they think later, yeah, what was I thinking? 
Yeah, and I think, and especially with like it's such creative industry, I already, in my mind, I already thought, right, I'm going to drama school. So kind of, this is just kind of checking boxes, making sure that I have life experience before I get there, that sort of thing. You know, they always say to you sort of, you should have life experience before you go to drama school. Mm. Um, and so I was kind of checking that box. But when I was there, I just... I did this whole range of different courses from directing and writing to physical theater to um, sort of educational theater to all sorts of different brand uh, branches and, and kind of really got a whole overview. And again, I found myself much more pulled towards the directing rather than being the acting, you know, like. Well, that's, that's great, though, to get all to to get the experience in a lot of different areas and to actually yeah. have it sort of reinforce what you were already thinking. Yeah. And I think and that the course was like a 60 percent. Uh, was it 60, 40 practical and theory mm-hmm. that way around? I, I, can't, I think it was 60 percent practical and 40% theory. It might have been the other way around. But anyway, we had a lot of theory. We did. We wrote a lot of essays um, and, and kind of had those experiences as well. So it was really like, not just about kind of learning the mechanics of being in the theater, but also thinking around it and kind of figuring out how to add to the world of theater and become a, a, an additional voice as opposed to sort of a new voice as opposed to just another one mm-hmm. sort of saying the same thing. So we really kind of got a strong sort of a very rounded education in it. But yeah, I was, I, I very quickly realized that I kind of did not want to be the person in front of the audience and having that sort of immediate feedback every second of every day. Mm-hmm. Where, and I kind of just, yeah, the, the acting thing just very clearly didn't, it wasn't obviously me anymore. Um, and so I kind of started angling myself more towards directing, more towards uh, producing, more towards um, sort of, theater and educational settings because I was you know I had a practical brain on my head and I was like I should have something that makes me sort of more of a fallback sort mm-hmm. of idea yeah yeah and so I was yeah I was trying to come at it from all angles I was like what's going to make me the most employable when I leave um I'm not and uh, that, so that, then, that's a totally totally reasonable concern and I would say that more parents than students have that concern but um it's it's a totally reasonable concern yeah, my parents, well, they, they didn't have that concern at all. They were just like, you know, do whatever. You can do it. You're amazing. <laughs> they, wow, they really... That's, that's really surprising. Well, I mean, it's surprising to me. Most of the people that, that <laughs> I grew up with and myself included, it was like, no, you have to get this education and then you can do whatever you want later, but you have to do this now. And uh, so that, that's really cool that they were that supportive of yeah, uh, whichever some... direction you wanted to go. Yeah, I had some really um, strong uh, figures in my life, very invested in whatever I chose. I had a teacher at school who um, who be- quickly became a family friend, but uh, he he was very invested in kind of make- giving me all the tools I needed to 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 do what I wanted um, and, and kind of go for the the big dreams. I I think I was probably the one again in my twenties and um, when I was in early twenties at school. I was the one who was trying to be more practical and trying to bring it back down to earth and kind of thinking, gosh, this dream I've had since I was a child because I didn't know anything else is kind of like is no longer my dream. And so I was like, right, I need to find practical, uh, practical, a practical job that's going to kind of get me working. I see. So so I was thinking that that you were thinking directing all along. But but when you said that people the whole bossy thing and that, and that people saw you that way, you were thinking about what other people thought, not the fact that you wanted to go into directing. 
Yeah, I hadn't thought about directing at all at that oh, point. Oh, I see. All right. So so then you got through all the, the different aspects and you realized that was kind of the direction that you wanted to go. And so then you were trying to figure out, now what can I do for a living? Yeah, exactly. And I think... Um, because I'd spent so much of my time just thinking, right, and then I'll go to drama school. Mm -hmm. I suddenly found myself at the end of my degree thinking, okay, what should I do? Mm. And one of my uh, tutors at school was like, why don't why don't you go for a master's in um, applied theatre, which is theatre in educational and community settings? And and she's like, do a degree around that, kind of get a real uh, a real grasp on how how theatre can be really valued outside of what you see just on the stage. Uh-huh. Um, and so I did that. I And I, you know, really, really enjoyed it. Um, it gave me a great basis to start my career in um, a sort of sort of coaching and teaching and all that sort of thing, which was which was then what kind of came next when I moved up to uh, Newcastle. I didn't stay in London. I didn't stay around where all the theatre hub was. I thought I'd go and try it out in the region, like regional theatre. Once you, got out of, once you got out of Holloway University, you didn't end up going to Holloway Prison? <laughs> no, I did not. That's good. That's good. All right. So, yeah. so, then, so then you started working more in the, in the teaching uh, arena. Mm. And, and then how did you get into audiobook production? So audiobook production kind of happened. Um, it, it snuck up on me. And uh, I mean, it I think up on a lot of us. Yeah, I think it's, it it really does, and I think it, it kind of snuck on me as a snuck up on me as a concept um, more than anything. Like I didn't listen to audiobooks when I was a kid or anything like that. I I, I remember always being very frustrated with the the narrators because I couldn't direct them myself, <laughs> <laughs> um, and like you know I I wanted to do the voices myself, and like so I was very much like in in that sort of space. So they weren't a big part of growing up for me at all, and so I didn't really think about them all that much and I remember like the first audiobook I actually listened to it was um Gone Girl Julia Whalen's uh, oh, yeah. narration of Gone Girl and, and that was like in my late in my mid to late 20s I think and it was purely because I wanted something that was going to convince me to run and I knew that music wasn't going to do it ah. it wasn't going to cut it for me and um, and so I was like maybe a story will keep me going and I and I listened to that one and I was like oh wow audiobooks have kind of moved on from when I was like a really small kid I, and I was really like taken by it and so the actual transition into audiobooks didn't come until I moved from Newcastle in, from in the UK to New York um which is where I am now and it it was when I moved here, you'd think that like the whole world was made, that I was suddenly right next to Broadway and theatre was all I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But then when I kind of got here, I was like, huh, it wasn't quite what I imagined. It didn't have this sort of small, intimate sort of feeling of the theatre that I'd been doing back in sort of the regional theatre mm-hmm. in the UK, yeah, in Newcastle. I, can, I could see how that could happen. Um, you didn't, yeah, you didn't move bit. here like in March of this year, did you? <laughs> no, I didn't. Okay, all right. So, so uh, when when you came here, there actually was theater happening. Yes, theater was right. actually happening. Okay, but uh, yeah, I, I could definitely see how uh, something like New York would be far different, N- neither better nor worse than um, smaller areas. Yeah, but and I think but very different. 
Yeah, it's and it's such a hustle as well. And it's kind of like a hustle that hits you like a ton of bricks mm-hmm. um, here. And I think one of the things that, I mean, I told you my parents super supportive. I had a teacher that was super supportive. Like all of my early career, I very much was lucky enough to find someone who is like very invested in helping me grow as an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like my last company I worked with in Newcastle was a company called Mortal Fools. And they were so good at like identifying your potential and then taking you to the next step and like really op- like helping you open doors. When I came to New York, like Broadway wasn't quite like that. I didn't mm-hmm. find that person. I didn't mm-hmm. find that sort of career, that step. And so I, I found my sort of personal community, my friendship groups from the writing community. And um, I have like this amazing uh, writing group for YA Hype on Instagram. Um, but they, uh, we, we wrote together a lot. And then I suddenly had this like, aha moment where I was like, oh my goodness, people produce and direct audiobooks. <laughs> and from that moment, I thought, well, this is what I want to do. And I hadn't even sort of come into contact with anyone in the audiobook industry at that point. And so then I had to like go about hustling, trying to find anybody and like everybody and anybody who would talk to me. I was sure. like, right, come on, let's chat. <laughs> yeah. And and what was it that brought you to New York in the first place? Uh, so my husband um, is a neuroscientist and he got a job at Columbia University um and so he was like hey you wanna he was boyfriend at the time and he was like you want to go to new york and he i was like yeah i bet it because i want to go to new york um and then so we got married in three months and off we came (laughs) that's that's great um that's that's nice that you were just as supportive for him as other people had been for you in a completely different setting (laughs) yeah very very different i mean we'd been together for like 10 years at the time or something ah, ridiculous. Okay. So it wasn't a surprise to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, that, and then we just got it over and done within three months and it was great. We didn't have any of the wedding stress. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a very interesting path into, into audiobook production. It's, it's funny because I have heard so many different ones. Um, there are some people, I mean, I, I talked to Julie Wilson at, at Penguin Random House and mm. that's like what she started doing as soon as she got out of school and she has loved it ever since. And Mm -hmm. there are other people, I mean, you know, myself, for example, who I didn't get into acting in any way, shape or form until I was around 40. Mm -hmm. And, and then, um, it wasn't for another, geez, I, I started in uh, commercial VO for a while and then got back out of that and got back into high tech. And, uh, it wasn't until I was, you know, in well into my forties, uh, well, Geez, I guess it was I was already 50 at that point when I when I actually got into audiobooks. And so um it was, you know, very late for me, very early for some people. And it seems like the road that everybody takes is is just different. Some are super different. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think it's it's a really interesting I mean, I so what I found getting into audio the audiobook industry is because I was getting in wanting to be a director and wanting to be a producer. Everything I found on the internet was aimed at people who wanted to narrate audiobooks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and like I'm not saying that there's a whole host of information on that. It's certainly better now, I'm sure. Um, but like even that is limited. And so when I was trying to figure out how to direct and how to produce audiobooks, I was like, I don't even know where to 
starts? Like, mm-hmm. how do like what's the path? And even now, now that I'm in it, I'm not sure what the path is. Like, <laughs> it's it's amazing considering what a huge part of the industry that audiobooks are now. And like, I speak to some people whose reading experiences only like via audiobooks. Um, and, and so like, even now I can't, I don't know what the path is. And the only thing I can really think of is like, it's about getting into the publishing industry and then finding your way from there. But then the publishing industry itself is really tricky to get into at the best of times. It is. I, and this isn't exactly about the industry, but it's about the, the structure of the companies. I've just gone down rabbit holes trying to find out who published a book and where is that publisher? And, oh, look, that publisher is owned by this other publisher. And, oh, mm-hmm. look, that publisher has a has a parent company in a foreign country. And, oh, look, <laughs> that, that foreign country company is actually different than what it, it's, it's just there are just so many facets to to publishing that I don't. Uh, even come close to completely understanding. Um, and audiobooks I have found are, you know, who to, who to talk to is, is always the most important point, no matter what industry you're going to. And, yeah. uh, I, I have found it a little bit difficult to, uh, to, to find that sometimes. It is. And I think it's again, and I think that, I think the reason why publishing is kind of constructed like that is it, I mean, it's like, I mean, it's like if you think of London as the city, it kind of grew and like you added things on and like it suddenly became this amalgamation of everything. And Mm -hmm. I feel like publishing is kind of like that. No one sat down and kind of put the grid system in (laughs) um, and made it easily like, like easy to navigate. Um, And so I think, I mean, and again, I don't know the full on history of audiobook within publishing, but my feeling is that it came from like needing the accessibility of audiobooks because you know like if if you uh some people have visually impaired then they can't read the audio the book so audio is a great way to get it to them and it feels like it probably started from that and then kind of grew out into its own artistic form and so there's like for example I went to a couple of publishing information sessions when I first wanted to get into it because I wanted to get my face in front of uh, producers. I wanted to get the producers at the sort of big five uh, mm-hmm. now soon maybe to be the big four. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, and I wanted to kind of get my faces, my face known. And um, when I went there, like there, there wasn't any representation for the audiobook department. It was all the imprints other than the audio imprint. Mm-hmm. And I found that fascinating. Um, just the fact that e- like even then, when the audiobook world is so huge and is doing such great things for readers um because I do genuinely like I think it is genuine reading like there are snobs in sort of the book world that are like it's not really reading and there are sm- snobs in the acting world that it's like it's not proper acting um but I think it's this perfect perfect combination of of the two worlds and it makes its own thing and I think that it's amazing that there's not like this path that feels more obvious mm-hmm. but you know yeah. so I just went out there and I shouted at everyone until someone heard me <laughs> well so so who who heard you how, how did you actually get started as uh, as a producer and I know that at this point you are independent you you contract yeah. and yeah. and you work for different companies is is that how you started and and where was it that you started yeah, yeah so it was Macmillan that heard me um the uh uh, executive producer, director of production, Guy Oldfield. He he was the chap that heard me, and I was uh, 
managed to get in front of him and just talk about how much I wanted to be involved. And I I was like, these are how transferable all my skills are. I have all this background in sort of singing coaching. So I know how to breathe. I know accents. I know, I know producing, I know directing, like, and so I I was really very, very, I mean, very un-British to get in front of someone and say, this is what I want. Um, But I think, (laughs) I think New York has uh, rubbed up rubbed off on me mm-hmm. um and so and he he at that point they needed someone uh to qc and do the quality control for like big titles so it was essentially just getting paid to listen to books and i was like hello yeah <laughs> <laughs> i was like this is a great job for me mm-hmm. um and so it was very much just a case of starting right there at the bottom um and kind of doing it excellently and being meticulous with my work um, and my feedback, making sure that it sounded artistic and that I understood what sort of the sort of the technical and the artistic stuff that was happening behind the audiobook. Um, and they saw how sort of strong my work was, how reliable I was, how obviously transferable my skills were. And then suddenly they found themselves, you know, in need of a director for a project and that their, their uh, team was, maxed out and they were like hey you know what why don't you come in and direct this and I was like yes yes please that's great Um, so the so the first thing after QC was direction which being that bossy girl back in school was just perfect for you yeah absolutely and it's I mean (laughs) I I try and tell my family all the time like I'm not bossy I'm just like I'm a director well it's Uh, it's funny when you said that people may have thought of you as as bossy and that's direction as soon as you said the word bossy I thought oh so you're going to go into stage management but uh (laughs) but but instead it's it's direction so uh I I can kind of see it both ways I mean uh I an actual really bossy director in in theater, at least from my experience, is really difficult. Um, oh, yeah. It's it's much more of a of a nuanced thing, and helping somebody get to do the right thing instead of you know pounding on them to to get the right thing. So um, so it, I I wouldn't you know think that you were bossy when you were younger uh, <laughs> if if you got into directing. But so so what was that book that you directed? It was a book that was um, sort of a political book, um, and it was one that I kind of, it involved a lot of coaching in that, you know, it's a different skill to get an author director Mm. in front of a mic and to really make them feel comfortable and make them feel supported and really kind of, I, I like it took literally all my skills from everything I think I've ever done. Like it took job, it took skills from my communications jobs, my directing jobs, my singing coaching, because, you know, it's amazing how regularly you have to remind someone to breathe yeah. when they're not trained. <laughs> right. Like, because otherwise um, you get to the end of the sentence and it's like, <gasps> Yeah, or even in the middle of the sentence, and then you you break it up, and mm-hmm. and you kind of lose that sort of the structure that punctuation so beautifully guides you with, like right. just really simple things like that. Um, and that was a really, really that was an excellent boot camp in into it. I I was asking him to kind of you know really be authentic with the way that he was narrating as well. He thought he was coming in just to read it. And uh, I was there saying, hey, let's take that back. Let's take that back to the sentence. And I just want you to really reflect on what that moment means to you. And he was like, oh, okay, you're going you're gonna to ask me for a bit more than I thought I was going to get. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I've, I've heard that from more than one person. I had an episode back, uh, episode, I, I don't remember, four, in, in the 40s, I think, with an author 
who was uh, who narrated her own audiobook, the the audio version of the book that she had written, and she said it's probably the hardest thing she's ever done um, because she had no idea what she was going to need to learn to be able to do it. And um, she she got hooked up with uh, it was through Blackstone, and she got hooked up with <clears throat> excuse me Jamie Matler. And um, she said that the coaching was amazing and it was a, a huge help in getting her to be able to do it because it was so much different than what she expected. Oh, yeah. I mean, like he 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 was so grateful. And I was like, no, don't worry. It's just my job. And like it really did become. And I think it's one of the things I love so much about audiobook directing is you get that sort of one on one sort of intimacy that sort of I was longing for for my um back to my regional theater sort of days you get Mm. that sort of time to be just two people having a conversation to really make sure that um you were honoring the book and and you know and getting a good performance out of it and and I was kind of like it's that explanation of you know an audiobook isn't a stage play an audiobook isn't sort of a speech it's kind of more of this especially in in, in a non-fiction author narrator situation it's kind of more of a conversation between friends and you really really want to make the listener feel like that they are talking to you mm-hmm. and everything that you're going through and so we had this like you know I think each each audiobook is kind of a boot camp so in many little things, they all need something different and they all really demand different uh, skills and techniques to kind of get, especially with author narrators, kind of get them to to where where they, you know, need to be, but also where they feel comfortable kind of being a bit more vulnerable and, and trying sort of different expression and stuff like that. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it was it was certainly a sort of trial by fire. Let's go. Well, that's great. Uh, it, it sounds like it went, went well, though. Um, yeah, I know that, I that, like it went so well. That, that whole intimacy intimacy thing about, you know, making sure that the listener feels like you're talking to them, uh, mm. that, that still, to me, is one of the hardest parts. And uh, I think I have a long ways to go to be able to do that well. But I'm at, at the very least, I understand that that's the goal. So that's, that's mm. always good. At least you know <laughs> where you want to get to. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and again, each book is you're going to find it's going to be different as well. It, mm. There's no key to making it work every single time. It's really and I mean, I think this is another way that the theater training really, really uh, prepared me is that I spent my whole life reading text and trying to figure out how best to communicate it through performance. Like mm. that's been my whole thing. And so whenever I sit down to direct a book, um, and I know some directors uh, are very, like, very good on the fly. And I, you know, I, I, I'm as good as I can be on the fly, but like I prepare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I read that book and I highlight and I make sure that I get the exact peak of each chapter. Like I really, really approach it um, kind of in that sort of theoretical way that really then uh, informs the performance. That's great. Sounds like your uh, your education really made a big difference there. Yeah, it did. And I, I genuinely thought that a theater degree was just going to just going to land me in debt. I mean, it did, but you know, <laughs> only debt. And, right. And, yeah. Right. Debt, debt along with something to go f- to something to show for it. Eh, not quite as bad. Yeah, exactly. Like it, it feels, it feels more worthwhile. So, so you directed that one, and then, and you've directed more, and you've also produced audiobooks. So, what, what's yeah. the difference there? Well, I mean, the, like the. The, you just get to make more of the decisions, I think. Um, and producing is is you know it's that beautiful skill of being able to juggle um, 
all the projects at the same time. And it's about like, I mean, I'm a, a like you said, independent uh, producer and director. And so it, I, I don't have um, anyone but me making sure that my schedule is manageable. So I might get requests from people, um, but they're not checking in with each other to see if that's okay and it fits with my schedule. So the producing part really is needing that um, that amazing organizational skill. It's all the emails, it's all the scheduling, it's all making sure the equipment's in the right place. It's making decisions like, um, I mean, if you're casting for a book, making casting decisions. It's, uh, you know, working around uh, narrator schedules and all, and then the engineers. It's um, so making is, a decision is, of music. Is casting part of what you have done as a producer, or is that something that the, the company that hires you typically takes care of, or is it a combination? Uh, for me, um, I haven't been casting because I work uh, mostly with Macmillan right now. Uh, they they do a lot of the casting. So typically it will come uh, to me with the casting done and then I get into the, doing the scheduling. Or if it's, I mean, if it's an author narrator, then there's no casting to be done. Right. Um, right. But yeah, so uh, the, the producing um, is something I, I believe doesn't get shipped out to um, contractors that regularly, um, but Macmillan are kind of looking for, you know, ways to best make their team productive. And they have a great team, like it's a really fabulous team. But so they they needed a producer for something. They said, you know what, we've worked with her, let's bring her in to produce. Um, and so the casting would typically get done by Macmillan um, and the infrastructure would already be there, but then I'm there making sure that kind of it delivers on time. It kind of, I do the, I had to do the pass through to make sure the audio book was good to do all the spot checks, the beginning ends, all those sort of things. Um, So so when you are producing, uh, are you also in those specific situations directing or is finding a director or using a director that Macmillan pairs you with part of the job of the producer? In my experience uh, so far, it has been, um, I've produced and directed the project, which has just been such a luxury. You get all the choices. Um, But then like producers, so I mean, I can't, I'm not sure exactly how big the Macmillan team is, but uh, you know, they're producing a lot of books. They cannot direct them all. And as you know, like it, it, some audiobooks don't get a director or an engineer. There mm-hmm. are some incredible narrators out there. I'm sure, sure you're one of them who is perfectly capable of directing, producing, engineering. You know, really kind of doing the whole package. Um, I, so I appreciate of, the compliment. I will stay silent. <laughs> <laughs> stay silent and appreciate the directors and engineers, huh? Yeah, no, it's just um, you know. I, I think that most narrators at this point, in most situation narrators are self-directing. There are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, a lot mm. of a lot of the projects are uh, through ACX or mm-hmm. other outlets like that where a director is not part of the process. It's not mm-hmm. uh, it's it's understood that you're going into it and that you you don't have that um, that gift as Scott Brick put it at one point of having a director because the budget's not there. And, yeah. and so there are a lot of projects like that. And I know that there are also projects through the big houses that also you don't 
have a director um, mm-hmm. most of the time. And it is, I, I don't want to use the word luxury, but it, it really is a gift, um, like Scott said, uh, to actually have a director who can give you that real-time feedback and that mm-hmm. you can change things um, on the fly you might not realize. Well, if you say this differently, it'll give it more impact, whatever it is. Um, it, it really is a, a great thing. I have not been in the position to have a director, and I look mm-hmm. forward to when that actually happens because I know what a boon it is as a yeah. narrator, as an actor, to have that. But I, I just think that most of us uh, aren't doing that on a regular basis simply because it's not in the budget for 90% yeah. of the work that's out there. And there's there's nothing wrong with that, but mm. it does mean that you really have to, you know, up your game. You You have to have the skill set so that you can actually do some sort of some level of self-direction. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge, uh, fan of collaboration. That's kind of where my whole, uh, creative ethos comes from. And the idea that, you know what, I could have a great idea, but combined with someone else, I might have a great idea that then has a couple of other great ideas attached to it. And I think that's Mm. really, that that's why a director can be so so valuable to a project because mm-hmm. sometimes when you're against the time you know you're against the clock um and you have to deliver like it's it's so easy to kind of just not notice that that bit could have been emphasized more and like mm-hmm. it, it's really simple but like like you said there are so many people out there who uh, are really amazingly utilizing all these skills and still creating amazing work without that that extra uh, extra sort of person that the extra pair of ears and like what I mean gosh if the budget could be bigger like think how incredible all audiobooks everywhere could be yeah like no yeah it's very true and there are so many times when when I'll be working on something and somebody I I read recently somebody made the um, comparison to stage work where you're going to be learning something on stage. Okay, so you have to memorize the script. And and that sort of is the reason that you have, you know, weeks of rehearsal as opposed to pre-reading the book once and then oh, performing. Yeah. Um, but but the fact is that it's, it's not just memorizing the lines. It's mm. you have the right director and you can get an idea of, you know, how you can say it just something slightly differently and... Uh, or or very differently and have a mm. completely different meaning with the same words where if you if if all you have time for is to pre-read the book once you get an idea in your head you understand in that moment how that should mm-hmm. be done and then you do it that way and there have been a couple of times when I've gone back through and as I've been narrating I go through something and I read something and then like you know a couple of minutes later I actually go back to it and I say wait a minute mm-hmm. wait a minute that you know that that should have been different. And yeah. if there was a director there, most likely they would have stopped me right when it happened. And I was just mm-hmm. lucky enough to have caught it later. Uh, and I'm sure there are, you know, a bazillion imp- instances where that didn't happen and people were listening and it was probably fine, but it would have been better if, if that had, that extra resource had been there. Yeah. I think it's, I think it was genuinely one of the biggest uh, steps for me going from theater to audiobooks is, is being able to produce excellent work on in a time crunch without five weeks of rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and and I really like when you really think about it, and then you think that people are out there, narrators are doing it without the director. Like that's kind of that's kind of insane asking them to do that. Um, I 
love directing and that extra time that I put into it beforehand I mean I will be sat in my uh, in my apartment reading out loud over and over again trying to find the right emphasis um you know my husband looks at me a little like I'm a little crazy um, <laughs> but you know like so I kind of do the rehearsal on myself mm-hmm. um and to really make sure that kind of we can hit each moment and I can communicate exactly what I want very clearly and quickly and efficiently um in order to kind of fit within that sort of time frame that you have like most books that I've directed you you get that like kind of you get 20 hours 25 hours go 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 Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) and so it's certainly not something that you can sit down you can say so what is your motivation at this point (laughs) really dig really dig deep right I'm I'm guessing your husband doesn't actually think you're crazy he's just as a neuroscientist thinking how are her neurons firing so differently than mine would in that situation? Yeah, you're so I mean like he knows I'm crazy but you know my own special my own special brand of like you know, we all are. We've all right. got our own lovely, intri- like, uh, eccentricities. Sure. Um, but yeah, I'm sure he was thinking things like that. <laughs> so how has the pandemic changed anything? How are you working? Is is everything remote or um, whether it's Macmillan or somebody else, are you working in a company's studios or in um, uh, independent studios? Or is are you doing all the direction remotely via Zoom or Source Connect or some other thing? Or, or is it half and half? How's that going? Um, I am all remote. I have been doing this whole thing from my closet, which I have turned into an office, which I like to call my clothis. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so for me, especially working with Macmillan, like that, they, I mean, that engineers are so good at like sending out all the equipment and then sitting with the um the narrator over zoom and then setting it all up together it takes about an hour for them to do it and they're like watching over zoom and they're like no put it in there like do it like this trying to connect everything and setting out these rigs and like the rigs have been scheduled within an inch of their existence uh trying to make sure that all all projects are sort of happening seamlessly and so that's happening um i have had a couple of jobs which have been based in studios um and I've just been able to dial in and they've kind of made uh, sort of accommodations for, for people dialing in. And so the studio has been kind of taking the precautions um, and, and kind of you send out a waiver when someone's going into a studio or something like that. And then your narrator signs it. And then there was one where that had someone in the morning and then they had, oh, I'm so so going to forget the technical name for it, but you know, the fluffy bit that goes over the mic. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, all I can think of is pop screen, but, uh, I, I think that those have a different name. Pop yeah, filter. It like, yeah. It was like the foam version of that essentially mm-hmm. that popped over the mic. Yeah. Um, and that had someone in, in the morning and then they suddenly thought, Oh, you know, we need to change that. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to change that because obviously it absorbs everything. And so we had to stop and like kind of pause things until they could quickly grab another one. And um, so like there are studios out there who are doing incredible things to make sure it's all all uh, all remote um, and, and can accommodate when people do come in uh, into studios. Mm-hmm. And then there are some that, you know, we're all recording from like blanket forts or yeah. in like, strange little nooks in our apartments or homes. And And that's all going relatively well. I mean, it's, I, I, I know that it's a challenge, but uh, it, it sounds like from what you've said so far that uh, when you when you have those situations, you just deal with whatever the reality is and uh, it's all going well. 
Yeah, I'm genuinely amazed. I mean, like, I, I hats off to like the engineers who will make it all work and had to do all that troubleshooting right at the beginning for the remote stuff. Like, that's not where my skills lie. And I'm so my hats are off to each and every one of them. Um, because yeah, I've had no big problems when it comes to like, of technical things or anything like that the biggest problems I've had are with like super conscientious neighbors like leaf blowing next door (laughs) um and and we're having to stop for like 15 20 minutes to you know let them do that god I hate that yeah and then the next day they was just nice enough to do their neighbor's lawn it's like suburban (laughs) America being all cute but ruining audiobook recordings all over the country (laughs) I know I know dozens of narrators who are listening to that going they were in my neighborhood (laughs) (laughs) exactly yeah and and it's it's funny because you get to know the little sort of eccentricities of your own specific uh recording setup each time I was working with an engineer today he said that a project recently um he was working with a narrator who had like a dying fire alarm in their like hallway and it went off like every 39 seconds oh my god Um, yeah and so they had to like time it and then it would start wow. and then it would stop. Yeah. So, you know, you, you make it work. And I think that like, with this pandemic, it has been a whole host of uh, everyone figuring out how to make everything work. Yeah. Um, and, and, and make like the audiobook industry has just really, really proven how robust it is and how, how working remotely. Yeah. It was a problem to start with and it will still have problems as we go along. There are lots of things that I don't know about maybe independent studios and that sort of thing. Um, but like, it's amazing how much of it is, is, has really just risen to the occasion. Yeah. I'm sure that, um, after this year, there are a whole lot of people in the industry whose viewpoint may have been beforehand. Well, we do it this way. And now they're, they're going to be much more, um, if, if not agreeable to doing it a different way, at least understanding that it can be done a different mm. way and that there are ways to do it differently that are actually effective. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm sure that there are a lot of people who are going to be changing their take on uh, what must be done. Yeah, I think you're totally right. So, um, are there, are there any books or, or genres that you wouldn't do if, if, um, probably not from the big five, but if anybody came to you and said, Alicia, we want you to produce an audiobook or, or even just direct, uh, here's the book. Is there anything that you would say, I'm not interested in doing that, or, uh, that's material that I can't, I don't want to be involved with or anything like that? Such an interesting question. Um, <laughs> I think, I mean, I haven't crossed that bridge yet, um, but I think as an artist, uh, you you have to know your boundaries quite early on in your career. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, you can find yourself kind of in a situation that is fine, very uncomfortable. Um, and so, like, I'm, I'm really here for, like, well-reasoned discourse, even if it's not my belief or anything like that. If it is well-reasoned and not intentionally hateful, then, you know, I'm here for that. I'm here for sort of, like if it was politics that I don't particularly agree with, like are they coming at it from a, a way that is to hurt people? Then no, I, like I would, I would prefer not to take on anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you kind of you realize that there's there is a line. Um, and I, I think, I mean, I think romance and stuff like that. I think I probably won't get myself. I mean, producing is much much easier. You're not as deeply into the book. I think directing. 
three months would be an interesting challenge for me. <laughs> um, but then I don't think there's actually that much direction work going on with romance because actually you do want that to be a nice closed room, a nice intimate space where the narrator can, you know, go to town and do the things that they do really, really, really well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, at the moment, I'm saying no, unless it's like, hateful work that mm-hmm. kind of encourages um encourages hate basically I, I wouldn't I wouldn't do anything like that um I would read as much as I could about the writer or the uh or the uh or the genre or sort of their body of work and read the blurb as much as I could before agreeing to do something anyway to make sure that I was going in as well informed as I can mm-hmm. um so yeah, it's definitely on a on a project to project basis. You may have to ask me uh, a couple of ask me in a hundred projects. Yeah, um, no, but... I, I I think it's a for most people, for me anyway, it's it's something that evolves over time. I I do mm. agree that I think that everybody who is in the performing arts in any way should really think about this stuff early on in the career, and at least have an idea of how you would feel about something that might come along that's like this or like that or this other thing. Mm. Um, and, and then you're, you're probably not actually going to know exactly how to respond until you, you, until that actually happens because situations change. And if all of a sudden your finances are worse than they were when you were thinking about it originally and thinking, Mm -hmm. well, I wouldn't do that. Well, now you got to make a change. I, I remember sitting in my agent's office back almost 20 years ago mm-hmm. and, um, and there, there was a commercial for some, some fast food. I think it was Taco Bell or KFC or something. And, uh, and there were a couple of actors that were sitting there and I was just kind of sitting off on my own, minding my own business, but, but they were speaking loudly and I could hear them and, and they knew each other. And one of them said, Oh, you're auditioning for this too. And one said, yeah. And he said, aren't you a vegetarian? And he said, yeah, <laughs> I can't afford ethics. I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing where, you know, you get into a situation and, mm. um, your, your answer might change. And I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but I do think that it's, it's really a good idea to think about this stuff early on so that it, at least once you get into that situation, um, you have some idea where you're going to go. Uh, and that's why I ask pretty much everybody who comes in here, whether they're director, producer, narrator, whatever it is, what, what is it that you won't do? And I'm, I'm hoping that people listen to that and, uh, mm-hmm. and actually uh, think about it for themselves. Uh, I yeah, know I, think, that... I think that's great. I mean, I think it's, and it's important as well, it's, it's, it's the difference between what you will not take and what you would prefer not to take. Mm-hmm. That line is very different. And the prefer not to take, that's that that's where the sort of the lines can be blurred a little bit. And you can say, you know what, I would prefer not to take this, but you know what? I am in a bind. I need the job. Yep. Because I think, especially because this is like a creative industry, there's there's this feeling that work for work's sake is somehow like giving up on your artistic dream but you know what work for work's sake is so important and it's really important to kind of like demystify the creative industries so that you don't think that you have to do something you're uncomfortable just because it's the art it's for the art and Mm -hmm. if you don't do it you're not serious and we've got to kind of take out that sort of dialogue and and say you know what it's okay to take a job because it's a job you know, that pays your bills. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, there is space for the artist to really, really kind of 
do that. So kind of getting rid of like snobbery, knowing exactly what a preference is and then what it is that you ethically wouldn't cross. Like, yeah, I think you're really, it's really great. You're bringing that, that, uh, conversation up. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I appreciate that, that point of view, um, that, that the difference between preference and, and hard line and, um, and even those might change over time. Everybody's, yeah. everybody's situation changes. Every, everybody's life goes in different directions. And so. you reserve the right for it to change as well. Yep. Just because you said it once doesn't mean that you can't find yourself in a new area in your life and think, you know what? Life is different now. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, well, well, that's great. So, um, so when you're not working on audiobooks, what are you doing? You're, you said that you're, you're living in the city in Manhattan. Yes. Yes. We are living in a beautifully, perfectly formed small apartment on the Upper West Side. Nice. So what, <laughs> yeah, do, you, what do you do when you're not uh, doing directing, producing, whatever it is? I mean, I, I mean, I moved to the city. I love it. It's very different right now. We're not getting the same experience of New York, but yeah, you know no what doubt. you're getting? Yeah, you're getting, it's still an experience. Um, and I love, I mean, I'm a hobbyist photographer. Um, and so I will go out and enjoy the city as much as possible. But I think probably the biggest thing is sort of the writing community. I spend a lot of time with writers. Um, I, I dabble in writing myself. Um, and, uh, I spend a lot of time kind of crafting stories, figuring out how best to tell the story. And I think just, I think pretty much everything that interests me professionally and personally all comes down to how best to tell a story or how best to receive a story or watching Netflix. And, that, that's cool. You know, what, do, what do you like, uh, writing? Um, various things. I've got really into thrillers at the moment. Um, Really, like, really, like political, psychological thrillers. Uh, not political necessarily, but like, have you heard of um, uh, Ruth Ware? No, she's she's a British author, and she has this very like distinct voice with sort of Brit thrillers, sort of with thirty-something-year-old women as the as the protagonist, and it's this very cool, honest look at um, a woman in in sort of the thriller role, and then kind of it going on like these heart like sort of spooky adventures. And she has this hmm. amazing. She sets it brilliantly in very um, very clear cut locations. Like the last one was like on on the Alps or something like that. And the, another one was like near a marsh. And it's this, these thrillers that kind of really reflect the setting that they're in. That's cool. Um, I'll look her up. Uh, yeah. And it's really, and uh, the audiobooks are fabulous as well. Um, narrated by one particular narrator that at the moment, I can't remember her name. She's great. And she has a real gift for, for sort of accents and like take, and because it's all of Ruth Ware's books, um, I, I was skeptical that I was going to be able to think it was a different character, but within like a chapter, I'm there and she's, yeah, she's nailed that. Oh, that's um, fantastic. But, what, what, what a, what great praise for a narrator. I mean, yeah, definitely. Um, she, she really did kind of, yeah. When I first heard her voice again, I was like, oh, okay. She's doing this book as well. Okay. I'll, I'll have to like work hard, but then very quickly, I didn't have to work hard at all. That's great. Um, very cool. So, um, so, You've, you've worked with narrators, you've, you've directed, um, what, what are some words of advice you might have for, for narrators? Um, what, what have you seen that really made the process work well? What have you seen that maybe it would have been better if they had done something different? No names. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No names. Um, 
So I kind of, there's kind of, I guess, two approaches to this for me in that knowing that an audiobook is different to stage, it's different to TV, it's different to film. Um, it's its own thing. And I think even more so now, I think each year we get a whole new range of audiobooks that really kind of create this whole new uh, format, this whole, which is just so exciting. Um, and like, for example, there are some ways of experiencing a story for me that I only want to read. I only want to listen to in audio. Mm. Um, I much prefer that than I would to have re- reading the book or maybe even a film adaptation. And I think really finding that awesome sweet spot between a performance and an intimate conversation with a friend and really find uh, being present and finding the moments of spontaneity in the way you're experiencing and sharing the text. That is for me when audiobook narration really is at its sweet spot. Sometimes, sometimes when working with an actor, I might have to pull them down a bit, someone who's come from stage. Mm. And I think the audiobook industry is probably at this point having a huge influx of stage. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah narrators thinking you know what this is another band and uh, another area for me to explore and so really knowing the difference between the st- what you need for stage what you need for tv what you need for film what you need for commercials all these different things require very different skills um i mean obviously within the same family but different skills to really make the audiobook format same like mm-hmm. yeah um, and I think a lot of that is being present in the text and really being responsive. Um, and then in, in a practical way, um, it's for me, it's always been about making your own opportunities. Um, there is a whole lot of luck and subjectivity involved, right place, right time, right people. But if you're putting yourself out there and uh, becoming part of the community, creating authentic relationships beyond trying to get somewhere and get something from someone, sharing your work, then you're putting more of yourself out there for the for luck to interact with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, like seek out and make opportunities and kind of, you know, be a part of the community in a way that is giving back as well as, as taking. I think that that's going to be a really great way to become, um, yeah, make yourself present in the world for luck to find you. But yeah, it's not, you can't be complacent. That sounds a lot like uh, part of the conversation I had with my last guest, Amy Rubinate, um, where I said, I, I think that a, a good portion of, not necessarily, but sometimes a good portion of somebody's success is luck. You're at mm. the right place at the right time. And Amy said, I don't really think it's luck. I think it's, um, you know, you make your own luck. And, mm. uh, and, I, and I think uh, I, what I came to after that bit of conversation was, it's a combination. It's, um, mm. you know, it's, it's not just luck. It's that you're doing something. You're, yeah. you're doing something, um, with, with a, a goal in mind. And, uh, a lot of times that ends up getting you into a situation that you might not have been in otherwise. Mm-hmm. And once you're in that situation, something might come along that wouldn't have otherwise. So, um, I, I tend to think it's a, it's a combination, but I, I like that, you know, do the right things so that, so that that luck that's out there can find you. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I, I land on, uh, on the combination side. Definitely. Um, I genuinely don't think where I would be in the position I am right now, if I genuinely didn't, hadn't spent my whole sort of life 
talking about audiobooks and making every single person listen to me when I said how amazing they were and how much <laughs> potential I thought I had within the industry. Like if I hadn't have started there, then no one would have known that. And then so what I did is I got to myself into rooms that had other people that were in the industry. And so then I talked to them about it. And like, it was really about making sure that I was I was in the space. And yeah. like, for example, for you, I mean, this audio, uh, this uh, podcast is a huge you know, huge part of the audiobook community, which is a really, really great thing. But did you start it up because it was instantly an obvious uh, uh, window for people to see you? It was kind of being part of the community, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I did know in the back of my head, well, if I do this podcast, I mean, there's a possibility that mm. I might you know, meet somebody along the way. And, and I will say that there, I have met a couple of people who in the long run, uh, have, it, it has worked out to, I think a tiny bit of work that may not have come along if I hadn't done this. I, I, I've, I've never asked, but, um, but really it was just being a part of the community and saying, mm. look, I'm, I'm not finding something that I'm looking for, which is information in mm -hmm. the kind of format that I'm listening to a lot, podcasts, Mm -hmm. about the industry, not just about audiobooks, because there are quite a few podcasts out there about, you should listen to this book. It's great because this reason yeah. and that reason. And that was not at all what I, what I was looking for every time mm -hmm. I searched for an audiobook podcast. And so it was just a matter of, there have to be other people out there who are looking for this kind of content that I'm looking for and not finding. Yeah. So I guess I'll just try to provide it. <laughs> Absolutely. And like, so you, you did and you went out there and you made that opportunity. And now you've got this really delightful long running podcast. Which yeah, it's is, great. You know, I, I, have, I have met so many great people that, yeah. I'm, that I'm still in touch with frequently um, through through this podcast. Um, so it's 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 been great. I, I do like that. And so, uh, so yeah, uh, do stuff that, that, where you can make your own luck. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, this Let is luck find you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, th this has been great, Alicia. So, uh, so where can people find you if they want to look you up online? I know that you're on Instagram, and now hearing that you're sort of a a um, uh, what's the word Am amateur photographer, uh, or or that you're really interested in photography, I can see why I found you on Instagram pretty quickly. <laughs> yes, uh, Instagram is is my my favorite home. Uh, I'm on Twitter as Alicia underscore E, but I don't say much there. I'm kind of just watching and seeing the scary things that unfold on Twitter. <laughs> um, I've, I've heard Twitter referred to as, oh, I try to focus on Twitter because it's easy. And I've also heard it referred to as a cesspool. Um, I, <laughs> I, I'm kind of the same way. I don't post on Twitter very often, but I, I do kind of see what's out there. Yeah, I think I, I found a real nice community um, on Instagram. I'm still trying to find my audiobook community on Instagram. Um, so, yeah, hit me up uh, if, if you want. And I'm Alicia. No. And um, you can find me at aliciasbooks.n.bobs. Think books and bobs. Um, and my photography is not that regular on there anymore, but I'm alicia.n.newyork. Um, but yeah, I've also got a website and, um, you know, every millennial, when they move to a new place, they have to write a blog. Um, but it is actually now developed into my audiobook website. Um, and that's uh, www.englishgirlinnewyork.org. 
Okay, so that's an easy one because it's English as opposed to your name. So make sure people know how to spell your first name. Okay, that's E-L-I-S-H-I-A. There's a sneaky I in there at the end that you don't <laughs> pronounce, and I only hear it when my mom is super mad at me. <laughs> we all hear certain odd things when our parents are mad at us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do. All right, well, thanks so much for coming in, Alicia. I hope that the, uh, I hope that the English garden variation was good. Yeah, it was actually. It's, it's, it's still going as well. I that's, thought too much. That's good. I've I've only got a tiny bit left of my French laundry. Highly recommended since since you like right. the uh, the uh, Saint Germain and you are a gin girl. Um, I I will send along a recipe for that. Uh, I I didn't find very many online, so I think that this was kind of a one off at a specific restaurant, and it didn't make it into uh, the general population. But uh, but I I think it's great. Uh, I'd probably cut down the the sugar a little, but the grapefruit bitters really make it. Um, you, Sounds you, delicious. You really get that without having a, a whole ton of bitter. So, uh, so anyway, uh, I'm I'm glad that the uh, the gin drinks worked out. Thanks so much for coming in. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. It's been a blast. Well, that's it for tonight. Many thanks to Alicia Merricks for stopping by for a drink. I enjoyed hearing about her work as an audiobook producer and director. Not to mention learning about a couple more gin drinks to try. And I hope you did too. Don't forget to check out the sponsor for tonight's episode, Squeaky Cheese Productions. They're on the cutting wedge. They're on the web at squeakycheeseproductions.com, and I'm very grateful for their support of the audiobook speakeasy. And be sure to check out David Stevers' Raven Rain, book three in the Johnny De La Rosa thriller series, with great narration by Bill Lord. Many thanks to Bill for his support as well. As always, you can find the audiobook speakeasy on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, and all the usual apps. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook speakeasy. If you're enjoying our speakeasy chats, please take a few minutes to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you'd add a buck or two to the tip jar. You can make a per-episode donation by signing up at patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy, or you can make a one-time donation by visiting paypal.me slash audiobookspeakeasy. Any financial support is greatly appreciated as it helps me keep the lights on here in the speakeasy. Until we see you here in the speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers! Cheers!